Yeah, I know. Where you been? What's going on? Why haven't we heard from you? Look, I'm not going to belabor the point. Uh, you're right. I haven't been around, and there's a reason for it. Um, I depend on my voice for my main business, and I had a, a bout of bad laryngitis, and I just couldn't get it under wraps. I get these things once every 10 years or so. My voice is usually pretty good. But everybody runs through a period of vocal difficulty once in a while. This one was an extended one for me. And uh, I really had to save my voice for what I really needed it for on a day-to-day basis as much as I wanted to do the podcast and comment on so many pressing issues that have come down the pike in this past month. I just couldn't do it. I didn't have enough spare gas in the tank where I could risk uh, compromising the other engagements that I needed my voice for. It's still not 100%, but it's, it's strong enough now where I can bring it back and, and use it and uh, not fear uh, it's going to degrade. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another episode of the Jamie Dury Show podcast. If you've not already done so, please subscribe to the show. And you can do so in one of several easy ways. You can either go to the Google Play Store, the iTunes App Store, search out the Jamie Dury Show podcast and subscribe that way, or you can download the free Podbean app in either of those two stores and subscribe that way because that's our hosting service. Whichever way you choose to subscribe, you'll be able to leave reviews, make comments. Uh, We desperately need more of both of a positive nature because the more we get, the faster the show will grow and the more offerings we'll be able to bring to you. So please tell your friends about us, share the show, review the show, comment on the show. And as always, if you have a question you want to send me uh, that you wish me to answer or a topic you'd like me to cover on a show, you can do so by emailing me at jamiedurie.com. 1776 at gmail.com. So, <clears throat> the big topic, the big topic on the world stage is the, the war that's going on in the Middle East between Hamas and Israel. And this is not the first time there's been trouble in the Middle East, not the first time the Israelis have been embroiled in a fight for their very lives, a fight for their existence, a fight for justice. Uh, and I'm sure you can tell by the language that I've couched this little preamble in that I come down squarely on the side of Israel in this thing. Uh, I'm not splitting hairs and trying to see two sides. I mean, I know there are two sides, and I can see two sides, but I'm not trying to understand two sides or attempt to create a moral equivalency here between the Israelis and Hamas, as so many other people have, including this schmuck who was a State Department employee uh, that has just left, a man named Josh Paul. He's a veteran official who worked on arms transfers at the U.S. Department of State, and he's resigned from his post in objection to sending more weapons and ammunition to Israel, an impulsive reaction that he said would lead to more suffering for both Israelis and Palestinians. Quote, I fear we are repeating the same mistakes We have made these past decades, and I decline to be a part of it for longer. The official Josh Paul wrote Wednesday on a LinkedIn post explaining the reason for his resignation. Now, prior to resigning, he had been the director for the State Department's Bureau of Political Military Affairs. Now, the reason why I wanted to lead off with this is because this is a classic example 
of what is wrong with our government and the perspective that we take on these conflicts. Here is a person in a position where you'd expect someone to know better, and he's leaving not because he's upset with Hamas, not because he's upset with the fact that his president sent $6 billion or freed $6 billion to the premier state sponsor of terrorism in the world, Iran, which then turns around and gives it to people like Hamas to invade um, Israel. He has no problem with that. He has a problem with us giving more weapons and more ammunition to Israel to defend themselves against an incursion which we indirectly funded through Biden's stupidity by giving $6 billion to uh, Iran, which they probably uh, promptly use to help fund operations like Hamas. These are the kind of idiots that are involved in foreign policy in the United States. And that's why we need new policy. That's why we need Donald Trump back in the White House. He's the only one with the cojones to straighten all this crap out. Now, look, people like to make the case of moral equivalency between the Israelis and Hamas. We have a great deal of anti-Semitism in the world. We have a great deal of anti-Semitism right here in the United States, in our own universities, even among, sadly enough, Jewish American students who have taken this liberal line. Not all, but too many for my comfort. It's because we have an uber-leftist education system in this country, which has pirated uh, education, and it is trying to indoctrinate rather than educate people uh, and indoctrinate them in a very, very leftist way. You cannot possibly make a moral comparison between Hamas and these terrorist organizations and the Israelis. Everyone wants to jump on Israel when they're forced and put into a position where they have to bomb a hospital, or a school, and they're portrayed as terrible, or bomb some other residential neighborhood, which they are now exposed as not a military target and so forth by the media. But of course, the reality is that these terrorist organizations have habitually, over the years, stored munitions in these locations which are largely protected under the Geneva Convention and the internationally recognized rules of war as sites that you just don't bomb. But what I have to point out that everyone seems to forget is that the minute the opposition elects to either house military or terrorist personnel there, elects to store munitions there, or other uh, material that's used in the dispensation of violence and war, these people, these locations, rather, cease to become protected targets and become legitimate military targets. And yes, it is most certainly a tragedy when people in a hospital that are sick, uh, that are legitimately there, or children in a school, or teachers in a school, or anyone in a school, is killed as a result of a bombing of that facility because it's housing munitions or terrorist personnel or what have you. And there should be blame for those bombings. But the blame does not fall to Israel for doing it. Israel is put in an untenable position where they have no choice but to do it, to defend themselves. The people who are to blame, the blood of those people that killed in those strikes at these places is not on the hands of the Israelis. 
It's on the hands of the terrorist organizations that put those people in there in the first place. They spill the blood of the Israelis, and they use their own people as human shields in an attempt to dissuade the Israelis. And if they don't dissuade the Israelis from bombing them, they disgrace the Israelis in the public, in the public square by trying to say that they're cruel and they're heartless and they're this. All they're trying to do is survive. Israel is a very, very small country, ladies and gentlemen. For those of you who don't know, Israel is about the size of New Jersey. That's all it is. New Jersey is not a very, very big state. And they've never been expansionist in their entire history. They were given that land, mostly from the British, after World War II, and that was their homeland, given it by the British. And the only time they've ever expanded or won territory is when they were, the, were attacked. And you're allowed to keep territory you won in a war, especially when it's a war you didn't start. Now, they're in a very, very bad spot. I mean, it is the Holy Land. They want to be there. But strategically, if you look at what you have, they're bordered by Lebanon to the north and Syria to the northeast, Jordan to the east, the Mediterranean Sea on the west, and to the south, they have Jordan on one side and Egypt on the other. These nations have traditionally not been very, very friendly to Israel. But as a result of the Abraham Accords, which were negotiated under um, President Trump, which were the final stage was set to go into full effect just before this incursion into Israel by Hamas, which I suspect is why they did it, and so does everyone else think that's why they did it, where the Saudis and the Egyptians and Jordanians all realized that uh, it was in their best interest to have good relations with Israel, and it would mean peace and prosperity in the entire region. But the Iranians don't feel that way. The Iranians, you have to remember, are Shiite Muslims. They're even at odds with the Saudis. And they're really super radical and extremist, and they've been that way ever since the Shah was deposed back in the late 70s, and these um, Ayatollahs took over and been running the country ever since. They're lunatics, complete lunatics. And they practice a very rabid version of Islam. Now, I'm going to be perfectly candid here, Frank, and say, look, I understand that Islam is supposed to be an, a religion of peace. That's the way they portray it. That, at least that's the way theologians attempt to portray it. And I had more than a passing interest and study of, Isra of um, Islam because when I was coming of age, um, <clears throat> Muhammad Ali uh, had regained the heavyweight championship. He'd come back out of retirement when I was in grade school, his forced exile. And I was fascinated with Muhammad Ali. He was one of my childhood idols. And anything he did, I wanted to do. So I had even thought about converting to, to Islam just because he was a Muslim. It didn't happen, but I worked uh, very uh, studiously at studying the religion. And if you read much about it, it is supposed to be 
a religion of peace. So let's operate with the assumption that that is what is supposed to be the legitimate character of Islam. The fact remains that there are over, I think, almost 2 billion Muslims in the world. But there are several radical factions of Islam which are anything but peaceful. Wahhabism, for one, has over 330 million followers worldwide. That's a population equivalent to that of the United States. You have radical Muslims in Lebanon. You have radical Muslims in Iran. You have radical Muslims in Saudi Arabia. You have radical Muslims in a host of places. So that as peaceful as the religion may be, in theory, um, according to rabbinical scholars and theologians, in practice, there is a very significant percentage of the worldwide Muslim population that is anything but peaceful. They're radical, they're dangerous, they're evil. So evil, as a matter of fact, the way they conduct themselves, destroying anything that disagrees with Islam as an affront to Allah, um, operating as if it's still the 7th century, speaking as if they're on a holy jihad, that they're not going to stop until every last woman, man, and child on the planet follows Islam and no other religion. Um, Beheadings, chopping people's heads off, slicing people's heads off. This faction of Islam, and I would say it counts for at least 30 to 40% of the worldwide Muslim population, which is on the order of seven or 800 million people, is anything but a peaceful religion. In fact, it's more like a satanic cult. And that's what Hamas is. We have Hamas taking women and children hostage. There's a 90-year-old grandmother from Israel that's now in the custody of Hamas. She's a survivor of the concentration camps under Hitler from the Holocaust. And now in her final days, she's going to be in the hands of these half-ass terrorists from Hamas. No, there is no moral equivalency here. Anyone who tries to make a case of moral equivalency or wrings their hands for the other side, you want to wring your hands for the Palestinians and you want to say you feel sorry for them, fine. But don't in the next breath say you feel sorry for them for them because of what the Israelis are doing. You should say you feel sorry for them for what Hamas has forced the Israelis to do. Hamas is to blame here. Iran is to blame here. And there's a host of other actors that I'm sure can share some of the blame, but the Israelis are not one of them. The Israelis are trying to survive, and they have a right to survive. And, and damn it, they will survive. Right now, we're getting support from Washington, support from the White House, but support for Israel in the White House has always been fickle when Israel really has to get down and dirty and do what they need to do to put the final nail in the coffin. Somebody in Washington always tries to buy them off or get them to back off or do something. Let's see what happens. All I know is if Donald Trump were in the White House, this offensive never would have occurred, and had it, it would have been over in probably 48 hours because that's the kind of response that would have been visited upon these animals. They need to be expunged in the extreme. So that's my position 
on who's right in the Israeli-Hamas conflict. Now, things might be going a little better here in the United States with respect to direction of the government and appropriations of money if we didn't have this ridiculous infighting on the part of the Republicans. Now, look, I understand that politics is politics, and I understand that some Republicans in the conference were pissed off at Representative McCarthy when he was the speaker because he tried to work with the Democrats uh, in order to keep the government open because he wanted Border Patrol agents and people like that to be paid. The bottom line is, there's a lot of blame to go around. Um, I don't think it was the worst sin on the part of McCarthy to try and keep the government open. I don't think he did a bad job as Speaker. He may not have been as hardline as conservative as some, some people had liked him to be, but he was able to try and get people to work together. Now, if the hardliners in the party, if the party really wanted him out, uh, there's ways to do it. And if they did this recall vote, which was unprecedented, never been done before, they should have at least had a plan and a candidate that they knew they could get across the finish line instead of leaving this void of leadership for this extended period of time while all this infighting is going on. First, Steve Scalise. Now, here's a man who should have gotten more public sympathy than anyone, having been shot at that softball game that time and nearly dying. I thought he was going to be a shoe-in. When he dropped out, I thought that Jordan would be the shoe-in. After two votes, he didn't make it. He's dropped out. And then they decided to empower a temporary speaker, the speaker pro tempus, Patrick Henry. That didn't work out. The Democrats are objecting to that. Now Jordan says he's going to go for a third vote. This was insane. And it's all been precipitated by Matt Goetz and eight people, uh, seven people that voted with him to bring this about. And I don't think that these people should ever be supported again. Matt Goetz is clearly trying to feather his own nest. He thinks he's extremely popular. See, he's being very, 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 very uh, cute. It isn't that he's courageous. Now, I know he's a big Trump supporter, and I thank him for that. I'm, I'm a Trump supporter as well. But he's only being as courageous as he is for two reasons. One, he's in the safest of safe districts. It is so overwhelmingly Republican He'll probably never lose his seat, and nobody will ever challenge him in a primary. So, he will be the Republican candidate for that seat, and the Republicans in that district will vote for him over any Democrat. That's one. Number two, he's got political ambitions. And Governor Ron DeSantis, who is trying to run for president, is up against term limits. So guess who's trying to position himself to be the next governor of Florida when DeSantis has to retire? You guessed it. Representative Matt Gates. So these are the names <clears throat> that everyone should remember. Representative Andy Biggs of Arizona, Ken Buck of Colorado, Tim Burchett of Tennessee, Eli Crane of Arizona, Matt Getz of Florida, Bob Good of Virginia, Nancy Mace of South Carolina, and Matt Rosendale of Montana. These eight people, siding with the House Democratic swine, were able to oust the Speaker of the House, and plunge the House of Representatives, the only branch of government that the Republicans control, where we have leverage, into absolute and utter chaos. And over what? The fight to keep the, the, the government open or not to shut it down? Much is made of the shutdown of the government, ladies and gentlemen. I'm telling you, it's much 
ado about nothing. Do you know how many times the United States government has been shut down in the last hundred years? And we're still here. And everybody that wasn't paid while the government shut down, we're all retroactively paid, so it's a bunch of happy horseshit that people aren't going to get their salaries. 1976, President Ford shut it down for 10 days. Government still survived. Jimmy Carter, 1977, shut it down for 12 days. First in September to October, and then again for eight days, October to November. And then November, late November to December, he shut it down for another eight days. In 1978, he shut it down for 18 days. In 79, he shut it down for another 11 days. Jimmy Carter got the record, boy. He'd been shut that, only a one-term president. He shut that thing down as much as Ronald Reagan did, but Ronald Reagan was in for two years. I mean, for two terms. In 81, Reagan shut it down for two days. 82, he shut it down for a day. Later in 82, for three days. 83, three days. 84, two days. 84, one day. 86, one day. 87, one day. See, Ronald Reagan shut it down a lot, but only for a day. People caved because Reagan was very popular. Then George Herbert Walker Bush shut it down for three days in 1990. Bill Clinton shut it down for five days in 95. And then the record, 1995 to 1996, December 16th to January 6th, 21 days the government was shut down. Barack Obama shut it down for 16 days. Trump shut it down for a day in 2018, and then for three days and later on in 2018, and then for 34 days, the longest shutdown ever from uh, December 22nd of 18 to January 25th of 2019, We're all still here. In fact, the government shuts down every Friday at about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, stays shut down until probably 8, 9 o'clock Monday morning. Nothing goes wrong. Everybody's getting paid, even if they have to print up the money. So this is much ado over nothing. But yet, the House of Representatives is plunged into chaos because of it. And now the latest development is Jordan, after saying he wasn't going to go for a third vote, has now gone for a third vote, He's failed. He's lost more support. People are bitter over this whole thing with Kevin McCarthy. I don't know why the bitterness should be uh, being directed at Congressman Jordan. He supported McCarthy in these votes. He was not one of the eight that defected. Uh, What happened was these eight Republicans, again, with the support of the entire Democratic coalition, ousted McCarthy. And yet here we have now Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, a piece of crap from my home state of New York, pleading supposedly with Republicans to reopen the House by joining Democrats in a bipartisan governing coalition. Quote, House Democrats continue to make clear that we are willing to find a bipartisan path forward so we can reopen the House and solve problems for hardworking American taxpayers. It's time for traditional Republicans to get off the sidelines, get in the arena, and realize that the chaos, dysfunction, and extremism has to end. The only way to do it is to figure out how we can partner in a bipartisan fashion to reopen the House and govern in a reasonable, common-sense way. Well, first of all, Mr. Jeffries, when you talk about extremism, uh, the extremism is in your party. Anything that's antithetical to your uber-leftist view, you consider right-wing extremism. I consider you left-wing radicals, extremists, 
uh, you're anti-American, you're the party of the Ku Klux Klan, you're the party of the welfare state, you're the party of illegal immigration, you're the party of support for terrorists like the Palestinian Authority, terrorists like the Iranian regime that your president just gave $6 billion to, you are the extremists. And if you're that concerned about the health and well-being and the financial well-being of the American taxpayer, maybe you should vote to cut taxes a little more, and maybe you shouldn't have joined with these eight radical Republicans to oust the Speaker, because at least we had order. Now, I don't know everything about the rules of the House, but it seems to me if you could join in a vote to oust a Speaker that's not part of your party, why can't you join in a vote to elect a Speaker? You want to get rid of the, the, um, the deadlock and the chaos? You should have added some of your coalition to vote for Jim Jordan, made him speaker, and then the House would be open again. So stop crying crocodile tears and make out like you really care because you could care less. Actually, you couldn't care less than you already do. That's my opinion uh, on that debacle. Now, I, I wanted to speak for a few minutes about Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey. I really can't not comment on this situation. Senator Menendez, for the second time in his career, has been indicted by the federal government that he works for on bribery and other corruption charges, including acting as an agent uh, of a foreign government. Now, this is not the first time that Senator Menendez has run afoul of the law. Back in 2013, rumors had surfaced that he was being investigated by a Miami grand jury. Uh, apparently, he was advocating for some business interests in Florida for an, a doctor there by the name of Solomon Melgin. He was a, a very good friend of the senator and he was a big time donor. And finally, on the 1st of April in 2015, the Justice Department indicted him. Uh, on charges of bribery and fraud and making false statements. Um, The wind-up on this trial was that the judge declared a mistrial uh, because, I I like to know, the judge's name was William H. Walls of the United States District Court, New Jersey. I probably should go back and look just to see for the hell of it who appointed Judge William Walls. In fact, let's pause for a second while I check that, because I'm sure it would be very interesting. Okay, no surprise there. Judge Walls was appointed to the bench in 1994 by President Bill Clinton. So a democratically appointed judge protecting a Democratic senator. Nothing new there. Standard operating procedure for the swamp in Washington, D.C. So they declared a mistrial because the jury was unable to reach a verdict. And then uh, in January of, this was back in September of 2017, January of the following year, 2018, the Justice Department said they were dropping all charges, and Menendez made statements that he was going to go on a revenge tour. Well, now, Senator Menendez indicted again. This time, they got a lot of evidence against Menendez. Um, They have gifts that were given to his wife, including a new Mercedes, when they, they're saying that he acted as um, a foreign agent because he helped Egypt and some Egyptian companies. 
when they went and raided his house, they found $480,000 in cash. Now, I think that most of us would agree that most people wouldn't have $480,000 in cash in their home, particularly when your job only pays you about $200,000 a year. Most people don't have the equivalent of two and a half years' salary in cash sitting in their home. Wouldn't we agree on that? I think most reasonable people can agree on that. You also had more than $100,000 in gold bars. Yeah, a lot of friends of mine have $100,000 worth of gold bars. It happens all the time. Maybe go into jewelry business. Yeah, okay. And then we have the Mercedes for his wife and a host of other gifts. Now, how this is going to shake out, I don't know. I think this time, uh, Senator Menendez is more than likely going to be convicted. This is the second time. They're going after him for a reason. When you see a Democratic Justice Department going after a Democratic senator, there's a reason. Now, on foreign policy, Bob Menendez is not exactly in keeping with the mainstream of the Democratic Party. He's a little bit more of a, of a, of a maverick. Uh, they don't like him for that. Uh, and they also don't like him, I suspect, for one other reason that no one is talking about. And you'd have to be a New Yorker to probably be aware of it and concerned about it. The state of New York is trying to pass a thing called congestion pricing. Now, this was something that was floated for many years in the state of New York. It really reached a fever pitch just prior to the COVID uh, shutdowns. Because prior to that time, things were doing pretty well in, in New York. Trump was president. The economy was booming. A lot of people coming in. And they were saying the infrastructure, the parking situation, the traffic just couldn't handle it anymore. So they wanted to discourage people from coming into the city by way of driving. They wanted you to take public transportation. That's kind of a red herring because there is an increased availability of public transportation. You look at the Metro North commuter railroads, even the early trains at 530 in the morning, those things are packed with people coming into the city. They're not putting on any more trains, any more service. So how are these people supposed to get in if they don't drive? And there are some people, by the nature of their business, they really need a car. People who have to bring equipment when they come in, they have to drive. So they have no choice. For people like that, it's an unfair tax. And what about people who live in the city? Don't they have a right to drive to their own home? Not everybody that drives into the city just works in the city. Some people live in the city. So now you're going to tax people to come home? I think it's wrong. I personally, if do not, I live in Manhattan. If I do not get an exemption, if an exemption is not written into the law, I will sue the state of New York. Now, the fine or the, the uh, charge is supposedly going to be very expensive. Some people have said $20. Some people have said $60. This is for anyone that drives below 60th Street in Manhattan. Now, Senator Menendez has sued the state of New York over this as an unfair tax, saying that his constituents, many of which uh, live in New Jersey and uh, work in New York and have to drive in, 
are already paying a stiff toll just to get into the city of New York, either by coming by way of the Holland-Lincoln Tunnels or the George Washington Bridge, and that now charging them a second time when they go below 60th Street is an unfair and redundant tax. But the state of New York really wants this. The mayor wants this. Everybody's looking to find additional ways of separating people from their money because they run a terrible state and local government. They have made this a welfare state, and they're looking to get money as people flee the state and revenue decreases. So I wonder if the fact that this was might have been the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of the Democratic power structure, willing to tolerate Senator Menendez with his foreign policy departures from the mainstream Democratic Party, and now this lawsuit against a Democratic state, a Democratic governor, a Democratic Assembly and State Senate, and a Democratic mayor, who all want this congestion pricing. So I'd like to see how this all shakes out, and we're going to be watching this case as it unfolds. Now, the last thing I wanted to talk about is this ridiculous trial that's going going on with um, with Donald Trump. There's a lot of trials going on with Donald Trump, but I want to talk about these, these two because they have something in common. I'm speaking about the case in District of Columbia as being presided over by Judge Tanya Chutkin, who is about as liberal and anti-Trump as you can get, as well as the case... Um, in New York, I just had the article here. One second, I will get it for you. Let's see. One second. Okay, here we go. Oh, that's not it. That's not the one. One second, I will get it. Yeah, yes. The one with Letitia James in New York with Justice Arthur... Engeron. Now, this guy is a real moron. He brags that he's glad he has the uh, power to issue JNOVs, and he, apparently he uses this with almost reckless abandon, much more than I've ever heard of a judge using it. Now, JNOV uh, is an acronym for a Latin term which stands for uh, you know, judgment non obstante verdicto, a judgment notwithstanding the verdict, meaning that in a civil case, if a ju- and they can do it in a criminal case too, if a judge thinks that a guilty verdict for a defendant, whether it's a civil defendant or a criminal defendant, is against the weight of the evidence that no reasonable jury looking at these facts could have possibly come to the conclusion uh, that the person is guilty, that the judge has the right to set aside that verdict on that basis. Now, that, of course, I think can be appealed by the prosecutors, but it's a great latitude that is given to a lot of judges. And I don't recall many cases uh, in which it was done. It was famously done back in the 1980s against this defendant by the name of Lewis Marin. It was a terrible fire in Westchester County, which is just outside the city of New York, in a place called the Stouffer Inn. And this Luis Marin was indicted for the arson, which resulted in the deaths of a number of people. 
And the judge all along felt the case was very weak against him. He let the trial play out. Now, a judge can also issue what is known as a directed verdict. Now, what is that? A directed verdict is when the judge acts at the conclusion of the prosecution or the uh, plaintiff's case. In other words, you have a trial, whether it's criminal or civil. The prosecution goes first. They make their case. In a civil suit, the plaintiff, the one who's seeking judgment, makes his or her case. And then the defendant, whether in criminal or civil court, gets to mount a rebuttal if they wish. Okay? Make their case. Now, the difference is in a civil case, sometimes you have to make a case. But in a criminal case, you're not required to prove your innocence. The state has to prove your guilt. So what a judge can do is, at the conclusion of the state's case, if they feel that the government or the state has failed to prove his guilt and that no reasonable party or reasonable jury could come to the conclusion that the person was guilty, he can issue a directed verdict and just say, no, I'm directing the jury find you're not guilty because can't find you guilty with this evidence, and the, the defendant doesn't even have to put on a case. Judgment, notwithstanding the verdict, is a little different. It gives the judge the same kind of power, but it also gives him the discretion to allow the case to go forward, allow the defendant to put on their case in the hopes that maybe the case works out the way the judge thinks it should work out and doesn't have to use his or her authority. But this guy seems to have no compunction against employing this tactic on a regular basis. He bragged about it in an interview and does it all the time. So it's laughable that he now is putting a gag order on Trump because of what he thought was a blatant violation, because he said something about someone or a government campaign. It was an off-color remark and wasn't deleted. You know, Trump doesn't run his social media. Now he's threatening to imprison him. Could you imagine the balls on this bastard to threaten to imprison the former president of the United States on a completely bullshit and fabricated case? And now you have Chutkin, the same thing, trying to do the same thing to the president of the United States. I think every man, woman, and child better start realizing something. If the law can be manipulated and stretched and contorted and distorted in this manner against the 45th president of the United States who has done nothing wrong, what protection do you have? He's also running for president. He has a bully pulpit. He can stand up there and say things, and they don't want him to say it. They want him to reduce it. Chutkin says he shouldn't be able to say anything against any government staff. Well, Jack Smith, the special prosecutor, I would say he qualifies as government staff. It's a bullshit prosecution. Trump knows it's a bullshit prosecution. I know it's a bullshit prosecution. You know it's a bullshit prosecution. And they're only doing it to try and keep him from running for president. You trying to tell me that he doesn't have a legitimate case to be able to say that on the campaign trail to his constituents and other Americans whom he may try to be wooing to be a constituent, he doesn't have the right to raise that issue. She's going to just decide it can't be done. Who is she to decide whether it should be spoken about or not? It's a freedom of speech. 
He's not telling people to riot. And I got news for you. He didn't tell people to riot on January 6th either. The statement is out there for everyone to hear. I want you all to go to assemble and protest peacefully. That's not inciting to riot. That's not yelling fire in a crowded theater, which is the line of demarcation the Supreme Court has said for years abridges your First Amendment right. You have the right to say anything you want, but you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. That's the example that's always given. Trump has not yelled fire in a crowded theater on any of these occasions. He's done quite the contrary. And yet they have these people putting gag orders on him. So they're putting him on trial, trying to bleed him down. And then they're trying to use gag orders in the trial to prevent him from saying anything. I think all these gag orders, in my opinion, are unconstitutional. I don't think there should be any gag orders. Because with each passing year, we're seeing just how corrupt the government is. There's no gag order on the government. They get to say whatever the hell they want. But Trump can't. I'm telling you right now, ladies and gentlemen, you may think it's fantasy. You may think I'm being overly dramatic. In my lifetime, I lived and grew up during the 1960s. I was born in the late 50s. I grew up in the 60s. The 60s were a decade of tremendous social unrest in this country. It was also known as the decade of political assassination because within that decade, they assassinated the President of the United States in 1963. They assassinated Malcolm X in Harlem in 1965. They assassinated... Martin Luther King in 1968 and they assassinated Robert F. Kennedy the same year when he was running for president. The people that were apprehended for these crimes, most Americans don't believe are the ones that did it. So they were able to kill a president in broad daylight in a populated city and nobody swings for it. They were able to kill Malcolm X in a theater in Harlem. They arrested some people. A lot of people don't believe they were the ones that did it. Only some of them were responsible. They killed Martin Luther King on the balcony outside of his hotel. James L. Ray took the conviction for it. Even Martin Luther King's son, Martin Luther King Jr., doesn't believe James Earl Ray did it. And he's said it several occasions. And nobody really believes Sirhan Sirhan is the one that killed Robert Kennedy Jr. They can do this. They can flake the 45th president of the United States with four made-up trials. They can do just about anything. The double standard is so readily apparent. Trump is being charged on multiple cases, but the case in Florida about the classified documents. Just look at that. Uh, I just employ you. Just give me a a second. This will put it in sharp focus for you. Give me a second. If you're within the earshot of my voice and you're not a Trump supporter and you're a liberal, just listen to this. This is not in dispute. And if you're honest with yourself, ask yourself why this is happening and try and convince yourself that it's not a double standard. 
Donald Trump was the president of the United States. We all know this. He was inaugurated, had the office for four years. He was the president. The president can decide at his own discretion what documents he can classify and what documents he can declassify. Documents that are supposed to go back in the archives, these may be considered procedural violations if you retain them. He may have had a justifiable reason for retaining them, but it's not a crime. The President of the United States is not subject to the Espionage Act. He is exempt. The President of the United States is only subject to the Presidential Records Act, and he's not in violation of that act. And yet they're indicting him, trying him, raided his house, and trying to put him in prison for it. Contrast that to Joe Biden, who had in his possession documents not simply from when he was vice president, but when he was senator, classified records that he has no legal right to retain because the vice president is not protected under the Presidential Records Act. That's why they call it the Presidential Records Act, not the Presidential and Vice Presidential Records Act. And senators are not protected. So here's a man who had multiple documents in his possession that had no right at any time to have them in his possession. Nothing's being done about it. Oh, just just a mistake. And where did he have it? Not secured. In the same garage where he kept his Corvette. Donald Trump's stuff was kept in a safe at Mar-a-Lago, and as a, being, as, as a consequence of being an ex-president, that property is protected by the Secret Service. I would say those records were pretty secure. They weren't in danger. Now, if you don't see the double standard in that, then you're either so one-sided that you've lost all sense of perspective, or you're really ignorant. But there's a, a double standard that is abundantly clear there. Abundantly clear. Just that it, it is abundantly clear that Joe Biden is completely out of his mind. He's dementia-ridden. Everybody knows it. And now, latest polls are, even though a lot of people said, oh, Trump's got to stop talking about 2020. Well, the latest poll I read showed that the overwhelming majority of the American people now believe the 2020 election was tampered with. And how could you not believe? How could you not believe that? Six states, all swing states, all simultaneously, virtually within minutes of each other, all announce that they're going to stop counting and will resume in the morning. No reason given why they had to stop. Never been done before. The news media uh, surprisingly says, unsurprisingly rather, says nothing about it. Doesn't remark on that night that it's remarkable. And in all six of those states, at the time this counting was stopped, Donald Trump was ahead. Comes the morning, all of a sudden he's behind. In all six, ask yourself what the mathematical odds are of six states, independent sovereign entities, ostensibly not in communication with, with each other, having no reason to be in communication with each other since one election has nothing to do with the other in the state. And they get all stop counting at the same time. What are the mathematical odds of counts being stopped in six states where Trump was ahead in all of them, and all of them, the count turns against him and he wins none of them. And so many irregularities have turned up in terms of the vote numbers not matching, 
Do you know a piece of information was given to me uh, a few weeks ago that the in-person voting in every state Trump won and that the mail-in voting in every state Trump lost and Joe Biden won? Now, the first thing you have to ask yourself is, and be honest, which vote do you think is more prone to being tampered with and corrupted, the in-person vote or the mail-in vote? I think the answer to that is obvious. And secondly, even that being the case, in a random chance event, like an election, what are the odds of that dynamic playing out? That 100% of the the states, Donald Trump wins the in-person voting, and 100% of the states, he loses the mail-in voting. I mean, even 40 to 10 would seem like it's plausible. But 50 out of 50, the mail-in goes to Biden and the in-person goes to Trump. I don't know that that's even mathematically po- I mean, it, it, obviously it's mathematically possible, but the odds are so astronomical, it's probably like the odds of winning lotto. And yet people buy into this. So there's a lot going on, and uh, we're going to be getting into all of it. Uh, now that my voice is, is back, I really hope to be joining you on the regular. I don't want to have to take any more time off from this podcast. And to all of you who have been so patient waiting for this latest installment, I apologize to you. I'm not abandoning the idea of doing the podcast. It's just that I was forced for um, reasons beyond my control, as I said in the beginning of the show, to do it. I'm going to make an effort to do podcasts every week. I don't know that I'm going to be able to do them every day, but I would like to do at least uh, three a week and get them out there to you. And if I feel I have to do more because information is coming in at that kind of accelerated rate, I will. Today, rather than being more focused on current events, was more of like an overview of things that have been happening in recent weeks since the last time I did a podcast. But uh, we will be more current and more on the money as, uh, as we move forward. So tell your friends about us once again. Share the show. Give us a review. We need all of these things. Email me at jamiedury1776 at gmail.com. And have a great weekend. And I'll see you guys on Monday. For the Jamie Dury Show, I'm Jamie Dury.